0: Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. We'll open your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Actually, we're going to go back and read um, chapter 1, verse 27, because... Chapter 1, verse 27, to the end of what we're looking at, chapter 2, verse 18, is all one unit of thought. And so, really the conversation that Paul is, is, is talking about starts in verse 27 of chapter 1. And we looked at this last week, and so, what Paul says is, "...only let your manner of life, your lifestyle, the way you live, be worthy of the gospel of Christ... So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So his charge to them is, I want you to live a life worthy of the gospel. How do you do that? Well, last week we spent a lot of time looking at humility. You consider others better than yourselves. You um basically have the same mind, you love one another, you look out for the needs of one another, you have the same attitude as Christ, and then we looked at what Christ did, Christ left the glories of heaven, came to earth as a man, as a servant, died a death on the cross, God raised him to the highest place, and then we're to worship him and have that same Christ-like humility, okay? So, tonight, Paul's going to focus on three areas in verses 12 through 18, and we're going to look at these three big areas, really spend a lot of time on the first and second, not as much time on the last. Verses 12 and 13, he's going to discuss just practical Christianity. We're going to spend a lot of time on verses 12 and 13 because I think it's very, very important. Verses 14 through 16, positive steadfastness, we're going to talk about that, and then we're going to spend a little bit of time in verses 17 and 18 on participation in Paul's ministry. So let's read these verses together, there's not very many. But they pack a punch. So you guys ready? Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 12. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, So let's look at big issue number one, Practical Christianity, in verses 12 through 13. And so before diving into this verse of Scripture, let us let Scripture interpret Scripture for a moment and discover what Paul is not saying. Work out your own salvation. Is there a difference between working out your salvation and working for your salvation? Okay, there's a huge difference. Let's just look at a few verses that teach us that we don't work for our salvation. That's not what he's saying. Romans 3, 23-24, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Okay, so our salvation is, is God's gift of grace to us. Galatians two twenty one. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So we can't get saved through the law, it's through grace. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 For by grace you've been saved through faith, this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not the result of work, so that no one may boast. So the obvious answer to the question of what Paul's not calling us to do is he's not telling us, work for your salvation. He's telling us to work out your own salvation. So what Paul is telling us to do because he uses the word work work out that salvation he's calling us to diligently pursue Christ through activity and effort. Now before you get scared off by that, we're going to explore that in great detail tonight. Literally the Greek text reads keep on continually out of your work out working out your own salvation. It's it's a present it's a present command there. Which means that You are never done working out your salvation until you get to heaven. So the question is, what does it mean to work out your salvation? What does that mean to work it out? Work out your salvation. Work it out. Now, in some Christian circles, some, the mention of the word effort or activity may be frowned upon because it appears to eliminate grace and the need of the Holy Spirit. Okay, we have two verses here, verses 12 and 13. I'm just looking at verse 12 right now, but we have to look at verse 13 as well. So we're going to learn some new words tonight, okay? You ready to learn some new words? Monergism, which is, by the way, the best website. If you ever want to get the granddaddy of all Bible um, Bible websites and theology, go to, go to monergism.com. You can find pretty much everything you want. But monergism comes from two words. Mono means one. Ergon means to work. In other words, when we use the word monergism, it means there's only one person or one doing the work. Okay. There's another word, synergism. Syn, S-Y-N, we get our word synthesize, symmetry, um, synthetic, (laughs) means to work together. In other words, synergism means that there are two working, not just one. So, let's ask the question. In our salvation, our initial salvation, it is monergistic. God does the work. God regenerates us. God saves us. God God, we, we can't work for our salvation in our initial salvation. It's given to us as a gift. Do you, do you earn your salvation or does God give it to you? God gives it to you. So it's monergistic. There's one working. God saves you. Okay? But when it comes to your sanctification, that is, your growing in Christlikeness, your progress in holiness, your spiritual maturity, the work is synergistic. We work together with God to accomplish this activity, we have a part to play and the Holy Spirit has a part to play. So let me ask you a question. Who works out your salvation? Do you work out your salvation? Yes. Does God work out your salvation? Yes. Who does the working? You. Who does the working? God. Are you confused now? Okay. We're going to we're going to look at this in more detail, okay? So, we are called to put forth I'll call it Spirit, Holy Spirit and grace powered effort to grow. Will you grow in Christ by osmosis? You wish, right? I'm going to go to bed, put the Bible on my head, sleep for 12 hours and wake up and I'm going to have all this knowledge because it's just going to soak in. Okay? You're not some passive channel that, that, that there's nothing required of you to do. And so, he says, work out. Now, there's a lot of different ways that the Bible gives us to describe this working out of our salvation, this pursuit of spiritual growth, this um, grace-empowered effort, if you will. Romans 8, 13. If you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit... You put to deed the the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay, let's just look at this verse real quick. Romans 8, 13. What are you called to do? Put to death. Sin. How do you do that? By the Spirit. So, you do work. You're to put to death the deeds of the body. Who does the work? The Spirit. What does Philippians 2, 12, 13 say? Let's read it. Let's read it again. Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so so now, not only in my absence, but much more, as in my presence, but much more in my absence, you work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's your responsibility. Verse 12. Verse 13. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You work... God works. You see it right here in Romans 8:13. You put to death the sin or the deeds of the flesh, but you do it by the power of the Holy Spirit. Okay, 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run? But only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest preaching to others I myself should not be disqualified. What's the imagery here? The imagery here is what? Putting something to death, killing sin. <laughs> The famous Puritan John Owen said, you must be killing sin or it will be killing you. Constantly putting sin to death. What is this passage in 1 Corinthians? He's like a boxer. He's like a runner. It's athletic imagery. Okay, so let me ask you a question. Does boxing and athletic imagery bring to your mind effort and energy? Boxing, running. Is putting something to death? Yes. Okay. Colossians 1 29. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul toils, he struggles, he preaches the gospel, he teaches, he mourns, but he does this with the power that God works in him. Powerful. So the pursuit of holiness here is more like a struggle. So you've got boxing, you've got discipline, you've got running, you've got putting to death, you've got struggle. 1 Timothy 4 7 through 10, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train. Greek word there, gymnazo. We get a word gymnastics or gym, gymnasium. Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of all acceptance. For to the end we toil and strive... Because we have our hopes set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. So here it's talking about training. Train yourself. Train. Put to death. Beat your body. Discipline. Box. 1 Timothy 6.12. Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. Faith, take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, about which you made, the good confession, in the presence of many witnesses. At the end of Paul's life in 2 Timothy 4, 7, I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I've kept the faith. All these images that the Bible talks about pursuing holiness, do, this, do these things sound passive? I train, I discipline, I kill, I work out, I fight. I run. The writer of Hebrews in 12, Hebrews twelve one says, "Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us. Let us run. It's a marathon. Let us run this race that's set before us." Second um, Peter really puts this all together. Second Peter chapter one three through ten. His Divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that's in the world because of sinful desires. Okay, stop right there. God's power has given you everything you need to live the Christian life. Therefore, Peter says... For this reason, because God's given you the power, make every effort. You make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, steadfastness with godliness, godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For, if these qualities are yours... And are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never, you will never fall. Okay. We've seen just a few verses in the New Testament. From these few passages... We see that the scripture clearly calls us to put forth diligent effort in our sanctification. We're commanded to run, fight, diligently pursue, discipline, train, grow in godliness. These are things that we must do. We're not passive channels that sit back and allow God to do everything. Okay? So verse 12 is your responsibility. You are... Work out your own salvation. How do you do it? Notice what he says: <clears throat> "With fear and trembling." Which means it's serious business. You're not half-hazard about this. You've got to have some type of a plan. you've got to have a purpose, you've got to have intentionality. You've you got to take it seriously. Now, verse 12, we are the ones responsible for doing the work. But what does verse 13 start with? How does verse 13 start with? For, or because, verse 13 provides the grounding or the reasoning why we're called to diligently and continually work out our salvation. Why can we work out our salvation with fear and trembling? For, because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. I want to just teach you a grammatical pattern that you see all throughout the New Testament. The gospel indicatives... And power the moral imperatives. Now you may be like what in the world is he talking about? The gospel indicatives and power the moral imperative. I don't care if you remember that, but that's exactly how almost every epistle is written by Paul. So you may say, well, what's a gospel imperative and what's a, I mean, what's a gospel indicative and what's a moral imperative? I'm glad you asked. What's an indicative? An indicative is a statement of fact about what God has done and who you are in Christ. It's not a command or something to obey or something you're called to do. It's a statement of what God has already done. So in a, a gospel indicative is God's done this, God's done this, God is this, God saved you, God's redeemed you, God has cleansed you, God has called you, God has made you a new creation in Christ. God, 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 God has done all these things. Who you are, here's who you are in Christ. It's never once you're called to do anything. It's all what God has done. That's a gospel indicative. okay. But we also see in the Bible that you have moral imperatives. What's an imperative? It's a command. It's a command to be obeyed or something that God calls you to do. So here's the pattern in the Bible. Let me just ask you a question intuitively. When you read a Pauline epistle or any of the epistles... Does he start with the moral imperative or does he start with the gospel indicative? What does he start with in his letters? He almost always starts with the gospel. Here's who you are in Christ. Here's what God has done. Therefore, live it out. Now, what would happen if Paul started his letters with a moral imperative and left out the gospel indicative? People wouldn't want to read it, would they? Okay, so he starts out, let's just say a letter started out like this. To the church in Philippi, get busy doing what you're supposed to be doing and work out your own salvation. There's going to be two attitudes you're going to have. Some people are going to look at that and say, well, I can do it. Give me the task to do and I can do it. I can do it. Some people are going to look at that and they're going to be like, I can't do it. I'm already defeated before we've even started. So Paul does not start telling us what we should do until he's told us who we are and how we can do it. Okay? So the pattern in the Bible is this, especially the New Testament. You and I cannot obey the moral imperatives and our own power. We do not obey God in order to earn favor with Him. We obey because of what God has done. So you clearly see this in verses 12 and 13. You see this pattern, very illustrative, in verses 12 and 13. You guys tell me, what is verse 12? Is verse 12 a moral imperative or a gospel indicative? You guys tell me, what is verse 12? Is it a moral imperative or a gospel indicative? It's imperative. Why do you know it's imperative? There's, you see a command, right? Does that verse say anything about what God has done for you? No, you're to work out your own salvation. Okay. Is verse 13 a gospel indicative or a moral imperative? It's a gospel indicative. It's God who works in you to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, the, the order is reversed here, but because you have that for starting verse 13, Paul is going to give the basis or the power or the foundation behind why you can do it. For it is God who works. God who works. God is mightily and continuously working. That should give you great encouragement. God is always at work in your life, whether you know it or not, whether you can sense it or not. You may not see the deep recesses of your heart, how God is shaping you or forming you. You may look back five years and say, now I see it. But in the middle of it, you may not. Just because you can't see growth, does that mean God's not working? This, said, this says God works. Is that a present tense verb? Yeah, God is always working. Ephesians 1.11 says this, In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works. Same word. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. He works all things. What's one of those things He works out according to the counsel of His will? He works in you. That should be a great encouragement. But God does two very important things as he works in you. Oh, I'm sorry. This word working is also used in Ephesians 1, 19-20. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places? That's a powerful verse. What's Paul saying? The same power that God used to raise Christ from the dead is the same power that's at work in you, and God's continually doing that in you. So you have to ask the question, well, what's God working in me? Paul answers it. Paul says, God gives you two very important things that you need to be able to work out your own salvation that you would not have without God giving it to you. So you've got to do it, but God gives you the gifts to be able to do it. What are these two things? Number one, what does it say there? It is God who works in you both to what? To will. Number one, God grants us the desire or the will to grow and obey. The want to. That word in the original language really means grace-empowered resolve. A determination to obey. A persistent resolution to pursue holiness. If you find yourself wanting to grow in Christ, God put that want to in you. The desire to grow. God gives you that desire. Even when you feel like you don't have it at times, God will give you that desire. It says it right there. It is God who works in you both to will... That's that's your will, that's your desire, that's your your want to. But he doesn't just leave you there. What happens if he only gave you the want to? I really want to do this, but I don't have the power to do it. I've got the good intentions to do it, but I can't carry it out. God gives you both. Look what it says. It is God who works in you both. Both. There's two things there. First, to will. He gives you the want to. And to, what's the second thing? Work. What are you called to do? Work out your own salvation. Can you do that? No, unless God gives you the want to and the ability to. So the second thing that God gives you is he grants you the power to act and obey and grow. And here's why it's very important. God works, God works, God's working on his will. It's God who works in you. You work. There in verse 13, this word work God works in you both to will and to work. It's the same word used for God's working. And here's the beautiful thing about it. This is the only verse in the entire New Testament where this particular word work is used for humans. Everywhere else is used of God. God's working. And now it is God's working, but what's he doing? He's working it in you so you can work. Am I making sense or is this kind of confusing? Sure, it's making sense. All right. Before you became a Christian, did you have the want to and did you have the can do? didn't have either one of those. You didn't want to obey and you couldn't. When God saves you and grants you new life and new birth and He powerfully works in you, what's He giving you? All the time. What's God working in you all the time? The desire and the ability. Now, you're responsible for doing it, but God's responsible for doing it. So who's responsible, you or God? Okay, so here's the key question. If there's any fruit, if there's any progress, if there's any success, who gets the credit? God does. Is God going to do it for you? Is God going to do it in you? Do you have to put forth some effort? Does God give you the desire to put forth the effort? Does God give you the power to do it? Yes. Okay, we're tracking here. I'm going to talk about the means of grace here for a moment, because this may not be a a term you're familiar with, the means of grace. Anybody know what the means of grace, heard that term before? Such and such is a means of grace. When we use the term means of grace, we're not saying this is something that saves you. This is not something that, it's, it's, means of grace is not a Catholic term, like if you do this sacrament, you're going to get saved. A means of grace is things that the Bible tells you to do that will help you grow in grace. So what are these things that the Bible tells you are means of grace? Let me give you a quote from J.C. Ryle in his book, Holiness. It's an older book, written in the late 1800s, but it's a really good book on holiness. He says this, quote, One thing essential to growth in grace is diligence in the use of grace Private means of grace, i.e., the spiritual disciplines. By these, I understand such means as a man must use by himself alone and not one can use for him. I include under the heading, I include under this head private prayer, private reading of the scriptures, private meditation, and self examination. The man who does not, or woman, Take pains about these three things, must never expect to grow. Here are the roots of true Christianity. Wrong here, a man is wrong all the way through. Here's the whole reason why many professing Christians never seem to get on. They are careless and slovenly lazy about their private prayers. They read their Bibles but little, and with very little hardiness of spirit, they give themselves no time for self-inquiry and quiet thoughts about the state Of their souls. So, what are the means of grace? There are private means of grace and there are public means of grace. Private means of grace are prayer, private prayer. We used to call it a quiet time, they still call it a quiet time, your personal devotional time, your your private prayer time. Bible reading, scripture intake, maybe fasting, journaling. There's the private means of grace. Okay, so if God promises to grow you, is he? are you going to grow if you don't use the means of grace? If you never read your Bible, are you going to grow? If you never pray, are you going to grow? If you never memorize scripture, if you never journal, are you going to grow? Maybe incrementally, but you're not going to grow to the nature that God wants you to do. So, there's private means of grace that we must put the effort to do, which means that you've got to set your alarm at whatever time and you've got to get up and you've got to open your Bible and you've got to read that Bible and you've got to get a plan and you've got to get on your knees and pray. You've got to put it's not going to happen by osmosis. You've got to use the means that God has given you to grow. The means He's given you privately to grow are the private means of grace Bible reading, scripture intake. Uh, Scripture memory, journaling, private prayer, all the things you'd think about like in a daily quiet time. But there's also the public means of grace, which are fellowship with other believers. Whoops. Fellowship, worship, serving others, the Lord's Supper, many other ways the scriptures tell us to grow. Do you grow in isolation when you're not around any other believers? Do you grow when you're under the preaching of the word, when you're in a worship service, when you're gathered together? Do you, is that a means of grace for you to grow? Yeah. When you're in a growth group and you're getting fellowship and you're getting your needs met and you're able to talk and, and, and have a and have, um, small group support system, is that a means of growth, a means of grace? So there are private means of grace and there's public means of grace and the more you take advantage of those means of grace, the more God's going to work in you to grow. But you've got to take advantage of those. God's not going to do your quiet time for you. God's not going to memorize scripture for you. God's not going to pray for you. God's not going to, you know, you've got to get up and get in the car and go to worship. I mean, I'm just saying, there's some things you've got to do. Chris Lungard has, this is not in your notes, but I've written, I mean, it's not on your notes, it's in my notes. Chris Lungard writ, wrote the book, The Enemy Within. Uh, we did this as a men's study maybe about seven, eight years ago. And let me just read this. He, do you guys remember John Henry's hammer? John Henry, the old, the tall tale the, the American folklore, um, is a man who dug out the steam drill through the mountain so hard that he laid his hammer down and died. The hammer was his tool to dig through the mountain. He says, God has called us to grow in Christ-likeness, which at times seems like digging through the Himalayas. We have a tall mountain facing us every day, and yet we're called to work out our salvation. We're called to work with the tools that God has placed in our hands. What are these tools? Bible reading, prayer, scripture memory, journaling, worship. When we take the responsibility to swing these hammers of Bible study and prayer, the Holy Spirit works miraculously to dig us through the mountain. Any success, growth, or transformation that occurs is solely a result of the sovereign spirit. He produces the fruit. He brings about the transformation. He grants the growth. But we must use the tools that he's given us. Think of it this way. Let me give you another illustration. An army is at their base waiting for reinforcements, supplies, ammunition, so they continue the fight. Once the supplies come to them, you have two choices. What can you do? I can sit there and enjoy the weapons, kind of wait around, or you can go take the weapons and fight. The Holy Spirit's given us the weapons. What are the weapons? The means of grace. Prayer, Bible study, Scripture memory, Scripture saturation, worship, fellowship, all these things. But you've got to take them and use them. And God's going to give you the power and any victory that happens. If the war's won, you didn't do it. God gave you the victory. Okay? So it's very, very important that we understand... This passage of scripture. Now, there are two extremes to Christian growth that I've seen over the years. And one is in verse 12 and one is in verse 13 if you take those two verses in isolation. You don't combine the two verses. If you just take verse 13, one one maybe faulty or extreme view you can take is passivism Where you don't do anything. (coughs) Let go and let God. You never put forth any effort because all effort's bad. And so you just expect microwave growth by doing nothing. God's just going to zap you with growth and you just need to be still and wait for God to, to, to grow you. The Holy Spirit does everything. You put forth no effort. Okay? That's one extreme if you just take verse 13 by itself. Another extreme is if you just take verse 12 by itself. Extreme legalism, it's all duty where you put forth all this effort in your own flesh, you, you just kind of grind it out, and you never rely upon the Spirit, and you try to produce your own results yourself. So you've got to take both verses in context. You and I have a responsibility daily to keep on continually growing. God's not going to do that for you. You've got to use the means of grace He's given you. And when you do that, He's going to constantly be working in you to give you the will to do it and the power to do it so that at the end of the day, if there's any fruit, if there's any success, God gets credit for it. God produces it. You give Him all the praise. Because how does the verse end? It is God who works in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So what's the outcome? The outcome is it's for God's good pleasure. In other words, whatever fruit is produced or growth occurs, it's not to bring glory to us, but to bring glory to God. Greek scholar Marvin Vincent, he's written a book back in the late 1800s called Word Studies in the New Testament. Um, He said this, God energizes your will and your activity in order that you may fulfill his good pleasure in your completed salvation. So before we move on to the next section, are there any questions on work out because God works in? Did that make sense? You work out, God works in. That's how you live a life worthy of the gospel. He gives you the power, He gives you the will, He gives you the desire. Okay, let's move on to number two, the second big section tonight. And this is where we can just pack up our Bibles and go home because we're going to get stuck to the heart when we look at verse 14. Do nothing without grumbling, or actually, do all things without grumbling or disputing. <laughs> okay, Paul, thanks. All things without grumbling or disputing. These little kids are trying to sneak in. <laughs> Grumbling. Do you guys remember a story where people in the Bible grumbled? It harkens back to Exodus generation. You remember Numbers chapter 14, verses 1 through 4? And all the congregation raised a loud cry. And the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt! Or would that we had died in the wilderness! Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. That's the the epitome of grumbling. What had God done for them? You're no longer slaves. I killed Pharaoh. You got to part through the Red Sea. I even had water come out of a rock. I provided you with manna every day, quail every day. I led you by a pillar of fire. I led you by um, smoke. I gave you a godly leader in Moses. I made sure that even the shoes didn't wear out. And you guys want to go back to slavery? You stingy little. Ungrateful kids. That's probably what. I mean, think about the grumbling that the Old Testament generation did. So, what does Paul say here? Do all things without grumbling, complaining. 1 Peter 4 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Does anybody have a different... Does anybody have different words besides grumbling and disputing? That's what the ESV says. Anybody have different words in their translations? Complaining, arguing, grumbling. So, what's the difference between grumbling and complaining? There's probably not much of a difference. Yes. Oh, questioning. Yeah, questioning, complaining, grumbling. Here's the issue. In... um, Basically, the word disputing can really mean arguing or, or disputing, questioning. When you go back and you think about the nation of Israel, who were they really mad at? God. who they take it out on? Moses. Moses, and probably each other. So I think grumbling and complaining can be directed towards God or directed towards each other. And how does it often take it place in the life of a church, or in the life of a family, towards each other? We bite, we nickpick, we, we devour, we, we go after each other. Is complaining and grumbling contagious? When you get two or three people that start grumbling complaining, does that what tends to take over? Does anybody step in and say, "Hey, let's stop the grumbling, complaining. What usually happens? The grumbling and complaining escalates, it turns to gossip, and then you just get this big, everybody's just, you go off. Everybody's going off. And Paul says, do everything without that. Don't be like that nation in the wilderness that grumbled against God. Don't be like that. They were a twisted and perverse generation that was in the wilderness that grumbled against God. We'll talk about this in a few moments. Don't be like that. Instead, verse 15, you may be blameless and innocent. The word blameless means above reproach. No one can bring an accusation against you. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It just means that you have, you're a person of integrity. You're a person that, 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 that somebody can't bring a charge against. Innocent, again, doesn't mean that you're perfect. It was often used of, of undiluted wine. Pure, unadulterated wine or unalloyed metal, metal that hadn't been, um, you know, that, that was unadulterated. When used to people, it carried the idea of sincerity, purity, or um, integrity. Uh, Romans 16:19. For, you, for your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Blameless and innocent. Taking these two adjectives together, it signifies that no one would be able to blame or accuse the Philippians of any wrongdoing because they were working out their salvation with fear and trembling. They were living lives of integrity and it showed most powerfully through their not grumbling or complaining or fighting with one another. So you want to show practically what it means to live out your salvation with fear and trembling? Don't be a complainer. Don't be a grumbler. Be a person of integrity. Yes, Bob? This reminds me of what I've been told about uh, people who've had uh, domestic violence, the woman who's getting beat up and everything, that uh, a lot of times when they get her free from the the abusive spouse, that a lot of times the the wife will go back because she knows what to expect, or, or if she's free, she doesn't know what to expect. And it's more of a scary thing too, and and so in some ways that's kind of like the people of Israel. They, didn't... they just kept going back. Yeah, you know, like they wanted to go back to what they knew was right. what, what was com- like what was uh, familiar. Right. Even it though familiar. it was even though it was terrible. Right. Yeah. And Being yeah. in a situation that's terrible is better than what you don't know. Right. And and, I and think living... we all in some mm. ways fall into that. We want to hmm. go. We know what to expect in a certain situation, even if it's not good. Yeah. But we don't want to go and go further with God into mm-hmm. the unknown. Yeah. Which is scary at times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. So let me ask you guys a question. If you're using the <coughs> means of grace Bible reading, prayer, journaling, fasting, fellowshipping, worshiping, Lord's Supper, all the means of grace, and God's working in you, are you going to be less or more grumbling and a complaining type of person? Doesn't mean you're never gonna complain or grumble. But the chances are, because of God's working in you and your intentionality, you're going to be a more pleasant person to live with than a grumbler or a complainer. And really, it it boils down to your identity. What does Paul say there? Verse 15, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God. Who are we really? We're children of God by adoption into His family. And as His children, we should reflect our Father's character and our Father's holiness. We are to reflect the glory of our Heavenly Father. Romans 8.15 You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. So how do you work out your salvation with fear and trembling? You truly act like a child of God. What does a child of God act like? They're a person of integrity. They're a person of holiness. They, they don't complain. They don't grumble. You are, notice what he says, without blemish. Now that's an interesting word, without blemish. What does that remind you of? Without blemish. You're pure. Think about the Old Testament sacrificial system. What do they have to bring? A lamb or an animal that was without splot or blemish. And God often talks about the condition of our hearts and that whole issue of, of being without blemish. Psalm 15, 1 and 2. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. What were we predestined, what were we predestined to become? Ephesians 1, 4-5, Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. So, part and parcel of our salvation is God not only chose us for salvation, but He chose us to become holy and blameless as His children to live a life that reflects the glory of the Father. And notice what he says, we're living in. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Now this is where Paul harkens back to that generation in the wilderness. Moses says something about the generation in the wilderness. In Deuteronomy 32.5, Moses says, They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they're blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. That's just the exact opposite of what Paul says here, doesn't he? What does Paul say? You are children of God without blemish living in a twisted and crooked generation. What does Moses say about that nation in in the wilderness? You're no longer God's children. You are Uh, You're blemished, and you're crooked, and you're twisted. Now, what's Moses talking about? There was that generation that did what? The spies went in to the promised land, and and 12 went in, and 10 came back and said, we can't do this. We look like grasshoppers, there's giants in the land, we can't do this. Joshua and Caleb stand up and say what? We can do this. And the people got fearful and they wanted to stone Joshua and Moses. And they disobeyed, they rebelled. And God says, if you're going to rebel against my will, here's your punishment. Forty years of wandering in the wilderness, you will not see the promised land. That was the generation that was twisted and crooked and was blemished because they rebelled against God. And Paul is saying, think back to that generation They evidenced their rebellion by living like a twisted and crooked generation. They were not of integrity. They grumbled against God. They rebelled against God. You're different. You're not that generation. You're true children of God. You are holy and unblemished. You are living amongst a twisted and crooked generation, but you are going to shine like lights. Notice what he says there. Some translations say shine like stars. Okay, you're, you and I are living in a twisted and crooked generation. Darkness all around us. What's our job to shine? What was Israel's responsibility in the Old Testament? This is Old Testament imagery. What was Israel's, what was Israel's ultimate missional goal for, that God had for them in the Old Testament? Isaiah 42, 6-7. I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoner from the dungeon, from the prison who sits in darkness. What was Israel's goal? To be a light to the nations, to the pagan nations around them. Isaiah 49, 6. Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Israel's goal that God had for them in the Old Testament as God's chosen people was that by their lifestyle, by their purity, by the sacrificial system, by their holiness, all the pagan nations around them, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, all those ites, Will look at the Israelites and say there is something fundamentally, distinctly different about you. You shine like lights, and I can't quite explain it. You you have the one true God. That was what Israel was supposed to do. And they failed miserably at that, from time to time. But God calls us to be the same thing. We are to be a light to the nations. What does Paul say? You shine as lights. Where are we shining? How does Paul describe our lost culture in the same culture of the Philippians? A crooked and twisted. Crooked means dishonest, while twisted means perverted or depraved. Does that describe where we're living? Do we live in a culture that's dark? Do we live in a culture that's sin-filled? Do we live in a culture of perversion? Okay. Now, we can join in that and be no different. But Paul says, that's not your goal. Just like Israel's goal in the Old Testament was to be distinctly holy, you are to shine. If nobody's shining in the darkness, what's going to happen? People are still going to be in Darkness. Is God giving the world the responsibility to shine in the darkness? No, they're in darkness. How is a lost and crooked and depraved world going to know the gospel unless we shine? Does anybody know what the brightest star in our galaxy is? In our galaxy? Nope. Sirius. XM, the radio show. No, Sirius. That's where they get that. Sirius is twice the size of the sun and twice as bright. Sirius can be seen anywhere on the planet. That's kind of what Paul's saying. You're going to shine like a star. You're going to be so overpowering, and you're not complaining and grumbling in your honesty, in your integrity, in the way that you live as children of God, that you're going to overpower the darkness and people are going to sit back and say, now wait a minute. There's something distinctly different about you. What did Jesus tell us in the Sermon on the Mount? I mean, Jesus said the same thing in Matthew chapter 5, 14-16. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Let your light shine. Ephesians 5, 8. Paul says, For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Notice how he says, one time you were darkness, not you were in darkness, you were darkness. At one time, you were part of the crooked and twisted, depraved generation, but God's rescued you out of that. You are now a child of God, you are now in the light, so walk in the light, shine the light, shine like a star. 1 Thessalonians 5.5, 5, Paul says, for you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So, how do you shine? Paul does not leave us in the dark. He tells us in verse 16 how we shine. Holding fast to the word of light. Holding fast. In other words, Paul says here's the primary way, there's many ways you can do this, but in this passage of Scripture, the primary way we shine as lights and advance the gospel and walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, be a positive witness, is in our tenacious fidelity to God's word, the word of life. So the more you're holding fast to God's word, the more you shine. The more you're in God's word to the means of grace, the more God works in you to will and to act for his good pleasure, and then you're doing all things without grumbling and complaining. You're shining his lights, you're people of integrity, you're holding fast to his word, and this is a positive testimony to a washing world. So let's just stop and ask a question. Does that reflect who we are? You don't have to answer it out loud. But I wonder, are we shining... Like stars? Or are we in the darkness ourselves? And how much different our our culture, our town would be if we shone. If we truly did let our light shine before men. Now in the second part of verse 16... Paul does not want to be disappointed on the day of judgment that somehow his ministry to them was in vain. He says, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ, that day when Christ returns, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. I, I didn't run the race in vain. I, did, I didn't minister in vain. I, I poured into you guys. You guys are making me proud by shining His lights. I discipled you well. He uses the word of running, which is a very popular metaphor for Paul. We looked at it earlier, 1 Corinthians 9, 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one runs to receive the prize? Run that you may obtain it. So Paul loves this church. Remember, he's writing from prison in Rome. And Paul says, listen, make my joy complete. God's working in you. And and, and I really hope that on the day that Christ comes back, You as a church make me proud that I can look at how I poured into your life as your pastor and you are holding that light out. You are shining. You are not grumbling. You you are running the race to the end that you are growing in your faith, that you will continually work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So that's part number two. Let's move to part number three. Paul focuses on the Philippians' participation in his ministry. Verse 17, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. What's Paul talking about being poured out like a sacrificial drink offering? Where's Paul writing? Prison. In Paul's mind, death could be imminent. I've fought the good fight. I've run the race. I could die at any moment now. And so I know my time is short. I know that I'm going to be the sacrificial lamb slaughtered um, under Nero because of my faith. And I've spent myself for you. I've poured out myself. Paul says in um, 2 Corinthians 12, 15 to the Corinthian church, I will most gladly spend and be spent for all of you, uh, for all your souls. If I love you more, I'm to be loved less. Paul says, listen, I've spent myself for you guys. I'm in prison. I've given you my all, and I'm about to die. But here's what I'm going to do I'm glad and rejoice. You should stop in your tracks and say, "Now what, Paul? You're about to die in prison, and you're glad, and you rejoice." That's very countercultural. Go back to chapter one, verse twenty-one. That powerful confession that he had back in the beginning. What did he say? I looked at this a few weeks ago. For to me, to live is Christ. And to die is gain. If I die, I get to see Jesus. If I don't and have to rot here in prison, I get to still be with Jesus just through prayer. And, and you know, I don't get to see Him face to face. Either way, I'm going to be glad and rejoice. And then in verse 18, He says, Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, they weren't suffering in prison with Paul. But let's just talk about suffering for a moment. When you go through times of suffering, times of turmoil, times of hardship, what are you most tempted to do? Complain and grumble, (laughs) to lack integrity. And Paul says, listen, when you go through hard times like me, I'm in prison. I'm going to die. I might die. I might come back. I don't really know. But one thing I am going to do is I'm going to rejoice and be glad, and you should also. You should be joyful. So what does it look like? We may get done early, early, unless there's a lot of questions tonight. What does it look like to consistently and faithfully work out your salvation? With fear and trembling. What does it look like? Based upon the context of this passage of Scripture that we've looked at tonight. Well, you're striving for unity with others. That goes back to last week. Complete my joy, verse 2, by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. That's still in the context of his flow of thought. So what does it look like to work out your salvation with fear and trembling? You have the same mind. You're you're loving others. You're striving for unity. You're you're, you're living a life of humility. You're also not complaining or griping or causing dissension. You're you're doing all things without grumbling or complaining. You're also walking in integrity. you, You have a blameless character. You're a pure person. You're striving for holiness. You're also letting your light shine before men so they may see your good works. You're shining that light. You're holding fast to the word of truth, the word of life. Without compromise, you're you're holding fast to the gospel and then you are suffering well with joy. That's what it looks like to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's a tall order. Look at that list again. Look at that list. I'm going to be a person of integrity, I'm not going to complain, I'm going to suffer well, I'm going to shine my light, I'm going to strive for unity. That almost seems impossible, and it is, in your own power. But what does verse 13 promise us? For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. So, you can be a person of integrity. You can shine your light. You can do nothing without complaining and grumbling, or do all things without complaining and grumbling. You can strive for unity. You can do all these things because God is continually working in you. He's giving you the desire, He's giving you the power to live that out on a daily basis for His glory, for His good pleasure. All right, do we have any questions? Half an hour left. So we've got to have some questions here. Are, are you guys going gonna... to? A comment. We'll take a comment. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah. And one of the questions in there came up about can you really ever complain? And we talked that over amongst each other with each other and everything. And we kind of decided that. We should for sure never, ever complain unless we talk to God about it first. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes when you take it to God, your complaint is settled there and you mm. don't really have any reason to complain anymore. That, so. That's an excellent point, Lori, because the question is, should you ever complain? Well, if you, are, if you should never complain, then we have to throw out half the Psalms. Because what are some of the Psalms? Lord, I'm in a pit. Get me out of here. Lord, they're coming after me. Those are called psalms of lament. But here's the thing about the psalms. That's exactly what Laurie said. Who's the psalmist complaining to? God, which is legitimate. But you see in the psalm, it shifts... Let's just look at a psalm here. You complain to God first. He changes your heart. He, he reassures you with His presence in the gospel, and then there's no reason to go complain to others. So that's basically what you're saying. The Lord, let's find a psalm of lament here. Let's just pick one. Maybe Psalm 42. Let me see here. That'll take some more time. Um, yeah. Um, okay, yeah, Psalm 42, um, this is a lament from the, the, well, or we could go to Psalm 5. Let's just look here The only reason I know this is I'm teaching a psalms class right now for CCU, and I'm, I was grading finals last night, and um, they had to write, let's see here. Da, 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 da. Okay. Yeah, let's, let's look at Psalm 5. Psalm 5, this is really the first individual lament in, in the Psalms. It's the lament of David. And notice what he's saying. Is he complaining? Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you I pray. O Lord, in the morning... You hear my voice in the morning. I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch for you're not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. But I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. There's no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear the guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels because of the abundance of their transgressions cast them out, for they've rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them forever sing for joy and spread your protection over them, that those who love your, your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as a shield. Okay, what's going on in this psalm? What's David saying? God, I'm groaning. These people are evil. There's no truth in their mouth. They're coming after me. I see evil all around me. Life's not fair. I do not like it. God, please do something about it. And what does he remember? Look at verse 7. The abundance of your steadfast love I will enter your house. Oh God, you've reminded me of your steadfast love for me. There's no reason for me to complain. You love me. Verse 11, all who take refuge in you, in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy. God, I don't need to complain because I can take refuge in you. And you can give me joy. You spread your protection over me. I love your name. I will exalt in you. You bless the righteous, O Lord. So even though David starts out with complaining to the Lord, complaining to the Lord, usually these lament songs, David starts out with complaints, and then it ends with praise in God's protection, God's grace, God's love. And so to answer back on your comment, Laurie, I think it's a very good point. It's appropriate from time to time to complain to the Lord. If it's not, we wouldn't have the Psalms. But what will God do in the midst of your complaining to him? He will reinforce who he is. He will reinforce who you are. He will calm your heart. He will show you the truth. And usually at that point, you realize, I have no reason to go complain to other people. But what are we prone to do? Complain to God and complain to others. Or talk to others before we even talk to God. And get other people to take our cause. And it never gets healthy. Just I mean, complaining... It, if complaining for complaining's safe is never is never healthy. If you complain to God, it's always to lead you to, to peace, to joy, to comfort, to, to satisfaction in Him, to where you're no longer wanting to complain. But you don't do that with other people, do you? What do other people do? They reinforce your complaint. Unless they're a good friend. If they're a good friend, what do they do? Would you just shut up? <laughs> There's no reason why you need to complain. I love you and all, but there's no reason for you to do this. I mean, if you have a really good godly Christian friend that can get in your face or a spouse or somebody that can, they can call you on that and get you back to where you're at. But for the most part, a lot of times in our sin, grumbling is contagious, isn't it? Yeah. The other thing is it goes, back to, it goes back to the working out of your salvation because that's exactly how you're going to get reminded of the steadfast love and, yeah. and all of those things. Yeah, but if you're not, if you're not doing that part of it, yeah, all well, you've got is the complaint. Yeah, if you're not, <laughs> if you're not reading the scriptures, if you're not praying, if you're not meditating on who you are in Christ, if you're not working out your salvation, then you're not saturating your mind with the things that are, that are there in the Bible that tell you who you are. Yeah. Good comment, Lori. Any other, any other comments or questions? Doesn't have to be about Philippians. It can be any theological question you have. To kill some time here. How do you decide what how to fast or what? That oh, okay. Like? Okay, that's a good question. Did you guys did you guys hear a question? How do you determine how to fast? Okay, so I mentioned fasting as a means of grace. Number one, um, fasting is not something that I think you're you're legalistically commanded to do. But Jesus says, when you fast, so I think it's a voluntary decision that all believers should do from time to time. Now, the the reason why you fast is to grow closer to the Lord in dependence upon Him. And there's different types of fasts. You can like fast from all food and just you know drink like orange juice. You can do a water fast. Um, you can do a one-day fast. You can fast over your lunch break. It's, it's not so matter how long you do it, but normally, like for example, let me just—the only thing I know is to give you my experience. Okay, so the longest I've ever fasted is probably two weeks. Um, and after the third day, you hit like the third day, you hit the wall. And after that, it gets bad, it gets better. But the purpose of fasting is for you to. Totally depend upon God when you want to eat. Because <laughs> when, you're, when you're fasting, you're depriving yourself of food. Now, you're drinking liquids. But usually you go into a period of fast if, you, if, you're, if you're struggling with something, if you um, are making a big decision in your life, or if you want to grow closer to God. I've had people like, start easy. Maybe just fast one, like over your lunch break. and spend Instead of eating lunch or going to lunch with people, take that hour that you would eat and just pray. So you can start small. Again, it's not the length of your fast. It's what you're doing in the fast. You're, you're showing dependence upon God. You're depriving yourself of food so that you are concentrated. It's an extra special concentrated time of prayer where you focus in on the Lord That's that you don't really do it all the time. Like It's not like a daily thing. You fast every day. Um, my former pastor, um, he would fast every day during lunch. He wouldn't eat lunch. He, or No, he fasted once a week. Um, during one day a week during his lunch break. And he would just uh, spend that time in prayer. Um, and so there's been times where we've done that as a church. Remember a couple years ago we fasted during... Um, we fasted along with the India, the India missions because they were fasting. Um, now they were fasting long periods of time, like a whole... Like a whole I think it was like three-week, 21-day fast. But what was it? Maybe a couple... Was it last year? Oh, yeah, it was last year when we were talking about... Um, when I taught on prayer back in May... Didn't we open up the church on Thursdays for lunch, and we asked everybody to fast over their lunch break and come and pray? So we just, I think you even came to that, didn't you? I think, it was, yeah, I think I remember. So I don't know if that answers your question, Carrie. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of different ways you can approach fasting. You don't want to approach it as something legalistic that you feel guilty if you don't do it. You've got to be, I don't, I don't think there's like, I can't tell you to fast, Carrie, tomorrow you're going to fast. and If not, it's something you've got to pray about and feel led to do. That, does that make sense? Yeah. And there's times where we've called the church to fast, but it's voluntary. It's not like I'm going to police you and say, okay, I saw you at Wendy's and you're eating. You know, I'm not, I mean, you like the, yeah, you smell like french <laughs> fries when you came in. I mean, we call you to fast. It's totally voluntary, if, you know, how you want to do it. But in the 12 years I've been here, there's been times where we've called the church to a time of prayer and fasting just to all corporately get together. And to focus the same time of prayer when making major decisions or being, you know, led to do something. Does that, does that answer your question, Carrie? Good, good, good question. That's the first time I've ever heard of, of being different types of fasting. Well, I mean, you can... There's food fast. I mean, I mean yeah. Lent, yeah. in a sense, is a fast. If you celebrate <laughs> Lent, you're, you're giving up something for, you know, Ash Wednesday to, to Easter. Um, so you can actually fast from TV or fast from the internet, or fast from your phone. It's not so much what you're... You're putting yourself in a position to be totally dependent upon God without a lot of distractions so that you can spend concentrated, intense time in prayer and dependence upon God. And if that's over a lunch break, that's fine. If it's for three days, um, it's however God leads you to do it. Um, and it's different for everybody in how they do that. I think there's some freedom in how you fast. Does that answer your question, Chair? Yeah. Okay. I would recommend journaling. Does, do you guys know what journaling is? Um, journaling. Um, it's a it's a means of grace. I mean, it's not mandated in the Bible. You don't find a Bible verse it says thou shalt journal. Um, but I have a journal, like a little moleskin journal. Um, I wish I could show you. I've got like a I've got probably seven or eight journals that go back the past ten to twelve years, where every day. In my personal devotion, after I read the Scripture, I will just write out my thoughts to God. What He taught me, what I learned. I'll even write my prayers out. I'll write some things I'm struggling with. Maybe sermon ideas come out. I mean, it's, there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's just you writing what God has laid upon your heart as you've responded to Him in the Word. And it's a good exercise because you have a written record of how God is working in your life. Think about that. If God works in you to will and act according to His good purpose, sometimes you don't see that. If you journal His working and you journal answers to prayer and you journal your prayers and you journal your your thoughts and meditations upon the scriptures, you have a written record in your own writing. If you can go back and read it. Sometimes I couldn't read my own writing. I was writing so fast. Um, You've got a written record of how God is working and how God is answering. Um, so, if you don't journal, it, I mean, it's not for everybody, but it's a good discipline to sit down with a journal or a notebook or however you want to do it. And so, like, for example, I'll explain to you how I do it. So, my personal prayer time, I usually start out with a very quick prayer Lord, open, my, Lord, wake me up this morning because I'm sleepy. Lord, open my eyes that I may understand the word before me. And then I read the scriptures. Okay, I want God to speak to me before I speak to him. Because reading the scriptures is God speaking to me. Okay? And it helps me speak back to him if I know how he's speaking to me. So I read the scriptures. okay. And then what I do is I, if something stuck out to me in that scripture that I'm reading, I may write a thought down in my journal at that moment. But then I will just journal my thoughts. And I'll journal my prayer. Lord, in this passage of Scripture, you said this. This really struck me today. Help me to do this. Lord, I want to um, be this. God, I'm praying for this. You know, all related to that Scripture. And I write it out. Or, Lord, this is a good idea for sermon. Help me remember, remember this. Or something. I mean, how, there's no right. And then, after I've journaled, then I actually pray. So I get on my knees and I pray out loud. And the reason I pray out loud, not because it's magical, because I will fall asleep if I don't. How many times have you prayed and you start falling asleep? So, dear Lord, it's out loud because it keeps me awake. So I will pray usually with an open Bible, even with my eyes open, sometimes going back to what I read, praying that back to the Lord, maybe with my journal, focusing on that. So I'm not so tied into, you know, I've got to have my eyes closed. And my head. And, so, and then um, when I'm done, if there's anything else that I've thought about, I'll just write it back down. Now that takes a long time. Maybe you don't have that amount of time. But that's that's what works for me. Now, I know some people they get out their iPad, like my dad, he's iPad central. He's almost seventy years old. He gets his iPad, his U version, he's all like writing his stuff on his iPad. I can't do that. I gotta have physical Bible and physical journal. Um because I get too frustrated with iPad because like a text will pop up or, I mean, get it away. So um, I don't touch the electronics. I, I do all old school. But however you do that, if you use version or you like to type on your iPad, it doesn't matter. However it works for you. But there's got to be some systematic way in which you meet with the Lord on a daily basis in His Word and in His Prayer. And I think it's important to read the Scriptures first because it's God speaking to you to inform how you pray to Him. Because he will give you insights as you're reading into things in your own life that maybe you need to ask for prayer or, or ways to praise him. Um, if you just go in cold turkey and start praying, I think sometimes your mind wanders. And I think sometimes it's good to have him be a prayer template. Sometimes I've used a prayer template. So it would be like, okay, I'm going to start out with praise. I, I don't do this as much anymore because I kind of have it memorized. But if you're just starting out... So, maybe you do ACTS, A-C-T-S, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. I'm going to spend some time in adoration. I'm going to spend some time confessing. I'm going to spend some time thanking. And then I've got my supplication. This is my list. Okay, I pray for Don. Pray for Zach. Pray for Aiden. Pray for my parents. Pray for the elders. Pray for the deacons. Pray for the church. Pray for certain families in the church. Pray for such and such going on in my life. Pray for my parents. I mean, so there's all those lists of things that you're praying for that you have right in front of you. And so... It helps you keep organized. So that's the energy effort. That takes a little effort, doesn't it? You can't just I mean, I could just walk in and say, "Hey God, bless me today. Amen." There'd be nothing necessarily wrong with that, but the extent to it's like anything. The extent to which you put the time and energy into it, the more you're going to get the benefit same thing spiritually. Now God, again, works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose, but you've got to put some energy into that. And I'm not saying you have to do it the way I do it. Just do it, however it works for you to do it. But I would encourage you to journal. I'd encourage you from time to time to fast. I'd encourage you to memorize Scripture. i encourage you to meditate. Meditating on Scripture is one of the hardest things. Andrew and I were talking about this the other day. Uh, Pastor Andrew and I meet um, every week on Tuesday mornings, he and I, for, pa- for pastoral staff time. And we were talking about... <coughs> As pastors, one of my frustrations is we're, we're, we do so much sermon prep and teaching prep that a lot of times our time in the Bible is to prepare to teach and not just for ourselves. And he was talking about, like, my frustration with the Bible reading plan, like the Robert Murray McShane plan that we do every year, is that sometimes I feel so bound to get it read that I read it just to get it done, and then I'm like, okay, I got it done, I checked it off. And then I did it because I had to get it done. And meditating, so, so, so I've kind of not done the reading plan this year. I'd rather maybe spend more time on a like a small like back when we, when I preached through uh, Second Timothy at the, the beginning of, of January that Second Timothy passage. Okay, I spent like a lot of time meditating upon that, journaling that, spending time in that, to where I almost had it memorized. And that was really beneficial because I could spend a lot of time on one small passage of Scripture and ask questions of it and meditate upon it and think about it and ponder it. Um, and so, Scripture meditation, that's not like sitting in a lotus position going, Oh, it's taking in what the Scripture says, thinking about it, asking questions of it, thinking about it all day, thinking about the implications of it, thinking about what God really meant and dwelling upon that passage of Scripture throughout the day. So there's, that's a lot of ways the means of grace works. So, in the proverbial words of Nike, just do it. Oh, acts. Let me write it down. Yeah, I'm sorry, I went real fast there, Carrie. So, A C T S. So, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. Let me give you another. So, the acts acronym. So you start your prayer, adoration is like praise. God, I praise you. God, I love you. God, I worship you. Confession is confessing sins. God, I got this in my life today. I need to confess it. Lord, help me not to fall into temptation in this. Thanksgiving, Lord, thank you for all the ways you've blessed me. Thank you for what you've done. And then supplication, Lord, these are my requests. Let me, this is an older model. Let me give you a newer one. Pray. So praise, repent. Ask, yield. That may be an easier way to remember because it says the word pray. So it's the same thing. You're praising God for who He is. You're repenting or confessing. You're spending time in confession, repenting of sin. You're asking, okay, supplication, and then yielding is, Lord, let your will be done. This day I'm going to yield myself to you. I'm going to submit myself to you. You know, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So either way you can use it. It just gives you a template for how to systematize praying. Because what's our default mode when we go pray? Where do we always go first? Ask. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with asking. But that's all you do when you're praying. You're not worshiping or confessing. You're just kind of coming to God as a genie in a bottle and saying, God, give me, give me, give me. And at times there's nothing wrong with that, but it has to be balanced. It has to, I'm just saying... There's nothing wrong with asking. Obviously, the Bible tells us to do that. Knock, ask, seek, but you also have to combine the other elements in there. That was really fast, Carrie, but did that make sense? Did you get all that? Okay. All right, now now time's up. So we killed 20 minutes. Any other questions? All right, well, let's pray. Father, thank you that you do work in us to will and to act according to your good pleasure. And Lord, we're, we're thankful that you do not leave us to our own devices, you do not leave us to ourselves, because if we were left to ourselves, we would never pursue the holiness. We're so thankful for this. You're continually at work. Father, help us this week to, to do all things without complaining and grumbling. And Lord, help us to shine the light. Help us to hold fast to your word. Help us to be a true reflection of your children, who we are, that, we, that you're our Abba, you're our Father, uh, that we would live as children of, of the Father in ways that make the world stand up and say, what, what in the world's going on with that person? They're so different. Uh, Lord, help us to shine like lights in a crooked and depraved generation. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.